Welcome to Catholic Light. Join me, Becca Doherty, each week as we shed a little light while keeping the conversation light. Hi, and welcome back to another episode of Catholic Light. Thanks for joining me. On the second half of today's episode, we will read paragraphs 1345 through 1372 and continue talking about the Eucharist. So we're in part two, section two, with the Catechism of the Catholic Church, and we're going one by one through each of the seven sacraments. So I entitled today's episode, The Eucharist, an Easy Target, because... While, as we talked about last week, this saying is hard, who can accept it? Uh, Jesus transforms, or through the priest, consecrates the bread and wine into his body and blood. And as the disciples said 2,000 years ago, many of the disciples said, like, oh, this saying is hard. Who can accept it? You want us to do what? Um, people still say that today. But if we can you know, learn, learn a little bit more about the Eucharist, by the grace of God, understand it a little more deeply, um, it's this easy target by the grace of God, uh, something we can go to each week, each day, and come into communion with with God himself, Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity. My double entendre here um, is also that, or alludes to the fact that the Eucharist, and I would say Catholicism in general, is an easy target for some reason. Um, When you look at what what the world, what our culture makes fun of, uh, it's often the Catholic Church or the teachings of the Catholic Church. So um, the theme of today's episode was was inspired by my brother-in-law, Jimmy Ruth. Shout out to Jimmy Ruth, who uh, listens to this podcast. We were all together, and uh, he was talking about how in Vanity Fair, um, recently there's this photo shoot of Madonna. And as she has done a number of times throughout her career, uh, she mocks um, different aspects of the Catholic faith. So there's a, a couple different photos where she's, maybe in all of them, um, in, in the role of Jesus or portraying Jesus. And I remember one of them is, a, it's a, a mockery of the Last Supper. And then there's there's a couple other uh, photos where she's mocking different things of the Catholic Church. And... Um, you know, it's sad, it's infuriating, um, but it's also perplexing. Uh, you know, we talked about that, that day when we were gathered together, like, why is the Catholic Church or the things of, of Catholicism, why do they seem to be easy targets for the world? Like, God, God forbid someone, um, you know, made fun of, of a different religion. Um, you know, it, it seems like it's not uh, received as well. But for some reason, when the Catholic Church is attacked or teachings of the Catholic Church are attacked, it's like, ah, like we kind of like yuck it up as a society or like, oh, yeah, that's, you know, the, the Catholic Church. Um, so why, why, why is Catholicism an easy target and seems to be fair game? Someone said to me once, look at what's being attacked by the world and therein you will find truth, beauty, and goodness. So the, the devil, who is, is very much real, um, attacks that which is true, good, and beautiful. He does not waste his time on things that are not true. Um, but he attacks or uses others to attack that which is, is true, good, and beautiful. When I've, I've talked before about how I taught for a couple years in Nicaragua, and when I first started teaching there, um, Dan Brown's book, The Da Vinci Code, was was pretty freshly out. And I taught, at the time, I taught 11th and 12th graders. And so a number of my students were, were reading his book. And at the time, I taught literature. I was not a theology teacher yet. Um, I taught English literature. And so the kids were, I mean, they were just 
talk about it in their kind of day-to-day conversations as they were coming into and, and leaving class. But because I was teaching English literature, they would say like, oh, I was Miss Pine at the time, or they would call me professora, professora, um, or miss. Um, you know, this is a work of literature. Uh, this is literature class. Let's talk about Dan Brown's Da Vinci Code. So I read it outside of school. I read it so I could be able to chat with them about it. And then I used it, even though I was an English teacher, I loved, you know, my degree is in English and theology. I loved, you know, uh, any opportunity to talk about the Catholic faith and it was a Catholic school. Um, so I was like, okay, let's, uh, you know, let's, it was cute. They thought like, oh, we're like taking away from class time. But meanwhile, I'm like, ha, we're talking about Jesus and literature. This is exactly what, you know, English class at a Catholic school is, is made for. So, you know, we would talk about different dimensions of the book. If you're not familiar with the Da Vinci Code, um, he, the author asserts something that a, a heresy that has come up over the last 2,000 years. It's not anything necessarily new, um, but it's, you know, portrayed in this new flashy way. Uh, a movie came out with Tom Hanks and I forget her name, but the actress, I think the actress who played Amelie, and he asserts that... Um, you know, Jesus and Mary Magdalene secretly got married, had this long line of what's now like French royalty. And, um, you know, it hits on a, a number of other things that are untrue, um, but portrays it as, you know, the Catholic Church has been hiding this from you. And, you know, if you, um, it, it's actually a, a, a form of Gnosticism, this heresy that says, um, you know, only a select few get the real truth. And, you know, if you're enlightened enough or you're privileged enough, like you, you know, can receive these insights or these truths that the rest of, you know, Joe Schmo Catholic never learns or, or understands. So uh, similar to, you know, Madonna's spread in Vanity Fair, it's the world, popular culture, ridiculing, detracting from, attacking um, truths put forth by the Catholic Church. And so we might say with the Da Vinci Code, like, oh, it's just a work of fiction, you know, no big deal. Don't get, you know, all up in arms over, like, this novel. Um, or we might say about, you know, Madonna's Vanity Fair shoot, like, oh, it's just an artistic portrayal of, you know, whatever this this artist's thought and work. Um, but... In reality, it's, you know, it's mocking uh, the things of Jesus, the things of the Catholic Church. And I had a, a friend and colleague at the time at the school in Nicaragua where we taught, where he said, like, hey, the Catholic Church is often referred to as our mother. You know, she she raises us up in the faith, brings us to uh, Jesus. Um, and so, like, if someone made a movie or a book about my mom where he or she were, you know, mocking her or saying untrue things about her, I wouldn't be like, oh, that's just like a work of fiction. I'd be like, hey, that's my mom. Like, that's what I believe. That's who I love or that's what I love. And, you know, so stop stop making fun of her. Stop making fun of my God who I love and have a relationship with, with whom I have a relationship Um you know, it's not it's not funny. It's not, not all like fun and games, but these are real things, real people, uh, realities that I hold near and dear. And you know, the the world is is making fun of them. And so I say this as an intro to uh, another lesson I taught years later at another Catholic school when I was teaching theology and teaching specifically on the Eucharist. I would start the lesson with 
this article about a gentleman in Minnesota who was making a series of YouTube videos encouraging people to desecrate the Eucharist, treating it as like a joke or a funny thing or a sideshow. Um, on a side note, I would often, with a lot of my lessons, I would try to find an article or a YouTube video that was something current in the culture that my students were either listening to or talking about or reading. And then I would use that as a segue into whatever our particular topic was in class. Um, we would often then talk about, you know, something like a cool Catholic tradition and then bring it back to the scripture, the tradition, the magisterium. So in talking about the Eucharist or our lesson on the Eucharist, um, I printed off an article for each of the kids to read, and then we had a little debate about it, and then we would go into the actual teaching on the Eucharist. So um, years ago, there was um, this blogger, Paul Myers. He was a science blogger, a biology professor, and he had found um, a particular YouTuber who I kept his name anonymous, um, who would do these videos, these short videos, uh, desecrating the Eucharist. So I think in the very first video, he shows himself going into a Catholic church and then um, receiving the Eucharist, kind of tucking it away in his pocket. And then he made a series of videos where he, um, like in one video, you know, he, he flushes it down the toilet. In another video, he takes the Eucharist and he puts it in a blender. In another video, he sh takes the Eucharist and shoots a nail gun through it. So this blogger, professor, Paul Myers, made a video where he calls for other people to bring him the Eucharist, um, you know, secure, he calls it like that little wafer or whatever, he, he refers to it in a, a derogatory way, you know, bring me that wafer and I will, you know, show you how meaningless it is and then goes on to make a, a series of videos himself. So I used this um, happening in pop culture to kind of start the discussion with my students. Um, okay, first of all, this is not just a symbol. So this bread and wine, we believe, truly becomes the body and blood of Jesus Christ. So it's not just a symbol that this guy is desecrating in videos, which would be horrible in and of itself, but we believe that it's actually Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, present in this bread, um, who's then being flushed down the toilet, put in a blender, you know, j just horrible. And again, um, were this done in any other religion or regarding any other religion, I think the world would be, or a contingent of the world would be up in arms about it. But for some reason, like, oh, it's the Catholic Church. It's, you know, come on. It's no big deal. It's just like a funny video or it's just someone expressing his or her beliefs about Catholicism. Um, as part of that discussion, um, you know, people, as you can imagine, on YouTube, were other YouTubers were calling for the removal of these videos, for taking down these videos. And for a while, YouTube was saying, like, no, it's just a freedom of, of speech issue. You know, if you don't want to watch these videos, don't watch them. But, you know, this guy can do what he wants. And it was just like, bah, why? <laughs> this is terrible. Um, so after reading this article and debating, you know, is this freedom of speech or is this desecration of someone's religious beliefs and not just a religious symbol, but what we believe to be God himself, um, I would then introduce the kids to Eucharistic miracles, where if, if you're unfamiliar for throughout church history over the course of the last couple thousand years, at different times, um, people have gone to receive the Eucharist, have been venerating the Eucharist. In one case, a, a priest was 
was consecrating the Eucharist. And um, the bread either started bleeding. So as it was consecrated into Jesus's most precious body, uh, the host started to bleed. In some cases, people received what looked like this little wafer, we believe, the body of Jesus. And as they started to receive it and consume it, it became like a little piece of flesh in their mouth. Um, people have gone to receive the what looks like wine, and it, you know, it was blood in their mouth. So a number of these these miracles have happened um, with the Eucharist over the centuries, showing us that while it looks like bread, it looks like wine, it tastes like bread, it tastes like wine, something different is happening here. Um, this is not just a symbol. This is not just a remembrance or a tradition that we do every Sunday to remember that cute little Last Supper, you know, that happened with with Jesus and his buddies, but the the second person of the Trinity, God himself, is giving us his body and blood, soul and divinity, so that we can be in communion with him, one with him, literally, not just figuratively, symbolically, strengthened, nourished, fed by God himself. Because he knew that after walking the earth for 33-ish years, he would go back to heaven and would not be physically present to us. And so he leaves us this very beautiful, very incredible way to be one with him, to be in communion with him, to have him, not just with us, but within us, um, you know, helping us through our day-to-day lives. And so one of my my favorite Eucharistic miracles is the Eucharistic miracle of Santarem. Santarem is a, a little town outside of Lisbon, Portugal, uh, not too far from Fatima, one of the locations of a famous Marian apparition. And the story goes that in the 13th century, there was a husband and wife duo, and the wife was concerned, or I think she actually knew that her husband was having an affair. And so she went to see you know, at the time she was called a sorceress, but what we would say uh, is a psychic. And the sorceress psychic said, bring me the Eucharist and I will, you know, perform this little ritual, which will cure your marriage of infidelity. So your husband will no longer be unfaithful. Um, And so the next time you go to church, bring me the, get the Eucharist, bring it to me and, and we'll make this happen. So the story goes, uh, the wife went to Mass, received the Eucharist. Instead of putting in her mouth, she quietly tucked it in a handkerchief to then leave the church and, and bring to the sorceress. And as she left the church, the host in the handkerchief started uh, profusely bleeding such that people around her saw like something strange was happening. So the woman, terrified, ran home. There was this this large trunk at the foot of her and her husband's bed. She tossed the bloody handkerchief and the bloody host in the trunk, shut it, and tried to like kind of put it away from her thoughts for the moment. So that night, she and her husband are asleep in bed, and they wake up to this light emanating from the trunk at the foot of their bed. They open the trunk, and there they see the host glowing in um, – it looked like this little wax container – so they bring, you know, their, their lives are immediately changed and rocked by this. They, they take the Eucharist in this little wax container to their local parish, and the priest receives it um, and puts it in the tabernacle. They then come to find, the priest finds over the next couple of days when he goes to, to take it out, that the wax case has shattered, and there's this beautiful crystal 
picks or covering around the Eucharist. And what was that, the 13th century, so uh, over 700 years later, um, or about 700 years later, that Eucharistic miracle, the, the host with little drops of blood still on it, still contained in this crystal picks or covering, um, is present in that church today. And I was, was very fortunate when I studied abroad in Austria my, my sophomore year at Steubenville. Um, we, a group of us took the train out from Austria out to Portugal and traveled to this little church where you can still see the miracle. It was so funny. We walk in and, you know, we're English speakers trying to communicate with this cute little Portuguese nun who does not speak English, like, hey, we're here to see the Eucharistic miracle. And so she, she, okay, she nods her head. She understands what we're saying. She picks up this little remote control, essentially, points it at the tabernacle. It then like, the little doors open. We're able to go up and reverence the Eucharist um, and this Eucharistic miracle, which was so awesome. So... um, Again, I think of, of my friend Teresa saying, like, we it's it's so cool, the dimensions of the Catholic faith, but also a little weird. <laughs> like we just we point a little clicker at the tabernacle and like oh, there's Jesus present in his body and blood. <laughs> so if you want to know um where the true, the good, and the beautiful are contained, maybe take a look at what's being ridiculed, made fun of, um, secured by sorceresses and psychics, and therein you will find the truth. There you will find truth, beauty, and goodness. And um, what a blessing, what a gift that the tr- this truth comes to us at, a, at all angles or from all angles. So God reveals himself. Divine revelation comes to us through sacred scripture. So as we talked about last week in the Gospel of John chapter 6, Jesus lays out again and again and again, this is my body, this is my blood. All who eat it receive eternal life. You will not have eternal life within you unless you receive me in the Eucharist. Whereas in other passages, he had spoken symbolically. He clarified for his disciples, like, no, 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 I'm not really talking about bread. I'm talking about doing the will of my Father. No, 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 I'm not really talking about food or, like, eating bread. I'm talking about the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. In this case or in this passage, he says again and again, no, eat my flesh, drink my blood. Um, And um, that word that he originally used that's translated into eat – is another translation is is gnaw so like gnaw on my flesh drink my blood which again is is strange it's a, it's a wild and um, you know difficult to grasp teaching but uh, he persists in saying that this is my body this is my blood receive it and you'll have eternal life the blessed life the happy life that I have for each and every one of you so he gives us this truth through scripture through tradition we'll we'll look at at, uh, again, on the second half of the episode, a little more of, of that sacred tradition that's now recorded um, or written down in the catechism. Um, we see through Eucharistic miracles, like this is the truth that, that Jesus has entrusted to us. And on a side note, I would say, thank God, like it's, it's some people will say like, well, why doesn't God make it more clear, more obvious? Why doesn't he show everyone that like this is his body, this is flesh, this is his blood, it's not just bread and wine? Can you imagine if every time we went to receive the Eucharist, body of Christ, amen, as the priest put the the host in our mouth, or the Eucharistic minister, extraordinary minister of the Eucharist, put the host in our mouth, it turned to a chunk of flesh, like (laughs) Or every time we went to receive the precious blood and, you know, at first we're drinking wine and then it becomes blood, like blah. Like that's actually a mercy of God, an additional gift 
that it doesn't like we can't actually taste the flesh and the blood because that would be I think a little <laughs> a little hard to bear. So God in his beautiful mercy and love for us, he he hides himself, he humbly clothes himself in bread and wine which we as as weak little human beings can receive more easily. Um, it's more literally palatable for us to receive him that way. So how incredible that God gives us this truth. What a grace, what a gift. He gives us this truth through scripture, through tradition, through the magisterium. So for thousands of years, the the church has been clarifying, not creating, but clarifying this teaching, what it means, you know, for each of each of us, what that scripture, what that tradition, um, you know, means and how it ties back to the Old Testament, how it connects to our daily lives. We receive these Eucharistic miracles. Um, and so God, in wanting to give us the truth, truth and only the truth, he, he gives us that truth in, in different ways. And then not because the church is good, the Catholic church is good, but because God is good, he ensures, has ensured that that truth is is faithfully handed on. So we'll read one of the paragraphs we read in the second half of the episode is paragraph 1345. And just above 1345, it says, the liturgical celebration of the Eucharist, the mass of all ages. As early as the second century, we have the witness of St. Justin Martyr for the basic lines of the order of the Eucharistic celebration. They have stayed the same until our own day. So paragraph 13. 45 then details how the Mass was celebrated. This is uh, St. Justin Martyr writing in the year 155. Okay, so a little over 100 years after Christ died, resurrected, ascended back to heaven. This is how the church was celebrating the Eucharist. And as you read through, you see that it's, it's the same as how we celebrate the Mass today. Okay, so um, on the day we call the Day of the Sun, so Sunday is the day that that Mass was held, um, there's readings, there's a homily, there's prayers of the faithful, there's a kiss of peace, there's a presentation of gifts, there's a consecration, all the people say amen, and then there's what we would call communion, people, you know, go up to receive uh, the Eucharist. So how incredible that in the year 155, the Mass is being celebrated, and then now in 2023, the Mass is celebrated in the same way. Um, so that truth, that tradition, that practice, what Christ instituted so long ago has been faithfully handed on, again, not because the church is good, but because God is good and wants us to receive, wants us all to have the opportunity to receive the same truth thousands of years later. Um, as I say, you know, because God is good, not because the church is good. I think of a friend who's Presbyterian sent me an email a couple weeks ago saying, like, have you heard? It was an attachment that details like some of the corrupt things going on in the Vatican. She's like, can you believe this is happening under Pope Francis? I wrote her back. I was like, oh, Gingy, this has been happening under all the popes. <laughs> like, <laughs> Priests are, are wonderful and by the grace of God act in persona Christi, but um, they're sinful human beings like everybody else. And we receive the truth, uh, again, because God is good, not because we are good. And, and so we pray to be and become the the good people God intends us to be so that as Catechism of the Catholic Church, paragraph one says, uh, we may receive and share in that blessed life that God himself, out of sheer goodness, offers to each and every one of us. So as we conclude the first half of this episode, let's think of the Eucharist as an easy target. 
Okay, it's an easy target in the sense that God himself offers us this thing we can aim for, we can strive for, we can try to hit at least every Sunday, if not a couple more days a week, to receive him and to come into communion with him. Secondly, it's an easy target in that the world makes fun of the Eucharist, the Last Supper, in the case of Madonna, um, different dimensions of the Catholic faith. And so that could lead us to think like, okay, maybe there's something real, there's something true, there's something good, there's something beautiful here that uh, the evil one would spend his time targeting, trying to take down because um, it leads us to God. Okay, it brings us into communion with God, which is not what the devil wants. So we end the first half of this episode by, let's pray for Madonna, pray for all those who make fun of the Catholic faith, and pray for the grace to um, receive this, this incredible thing that God offers to each and every one of us as much as we can so that we can share in that, that own blessed life he offers to us. So we'll pray in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Lord, we thank you for offering us yourself in and through the Eucharist. We pray for the grace to receive you as often um, and as much as we can so as to come into communion with you. And we pray for all those who detract from and directly target the Eucharist and all things Catholic. Bless them, convert their hearts and minds, and bring them along with all of us to you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. We'll now take a brief break and then return on the second half to read paragraphs 1345 through 1372. Thanks for sticking around. You are listening to Catholic Light. Thank you for joining me each week as we read through the Catechism of the Catholic Church and discuss some of its beautiful teachings. I will now read Catechism of the Catholic Church, paragraphs 1345 through 1372. The liturgical celebration of the Eucharist, the Mass of all ages. As early as the second century, we have the witness of St. Justin Martyr for the basic lines of the order of the Eucharistic celebration. They have stayed the same until our own day, for all the great liturgical families. St. Justin wrote to the pagan emperor Antoninus Pius around the year 155, explaining what Christians did. On the day we call the Day of the Sun, all who dwell in the city or country gather in the same place. The memoirs of the apostles and the writings of the prophets are read as much as time permits. When the reader has finished, he who presides over those gathered admonishes and challenges them to imitate these beautiful things. Then we all rise together and offer prayers for ourselves and for all others, wherever they may be, so that we may be found righteous by our life and actions and faithful to the commandments, so as to obtain eternal salvation. When the prayers are concluded, we exchange the kiss. Then someone bring, brings bread and a cup of water and wine mixed together to him who presides over the brethren. He takes them and offers praise and glory to the Father of the universe through the name of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and for a considerable time he gives thanks that we have been judged worthy of these gifts. When he has concluded the prayers and thanksgivings, all present give voice to an acclamation by saying, Amen. When he who presides has given thanks and the people have responded, those whom we call deacons give to those present the Eucharisted bread, wine, and water, and take them to those who are absent. The liturgy of the Eucharist unfolds according to a fundamental structure, which has been preserved throughout the centuries down to our own day. It displays two great parts that form a fundamental unity. 
the gathering, the liturgy of the word with readings, homily, and general intercessions, the liturgy of the Eucharist with the presentation of the bread and wine, the consecratory thanksgiving, and communion. The liturgy of the word and liturgy of the Eucharist together form one single act of worship. The Eucharistic table set for us is the table both of the word of God and of the body of the Lord. Is this not the same movement as the Paschal meal of the risen Jesus with his disciples? Walking with them, he explained the scriptures to them. Sitting with them at table, he took bread, blessed and broke it, and gave it to them. The movement of the celebration. All gather together. Christians come together in one place for the Eucharistic assembly. At its head is Christ himself, the principal agent of the Eucharist. He is high priest of the new covenant. It is he himself who presides invisibly over every Eucharistic celebration. It is in representing him that the bishop or priest, acting in the person of Christ the head, in persona Christi Capitis, presides over the assembly, speaks after the readings, receives the offerings, and says the Eucharistic prayer. All have their own active parts to play in the celebration, each in his own way. Readers, those who bring up the offerings, those who give communion, and the whole people whose amen manifests their participation. The liturgy of the word includes the writings of the prophets, that is, the Old Testament, and the memoirs of the apostles, their letters and the gospels. After the homily, which is an exhortation to accept this word as what it truly is, the word of God, and to put it into practice, come the intercessions for all men, according to the apostles' words. I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all men, for kings, and all who are in high positions. The presentation of the offerings or the offertory. Then, sometimes in procession, the bread and wine are brought to the altar. They will be offered by the priest in the name of Christ in the Eucharistic sacrifice in which they will become his body and blood. It is the very action of Christ at the Last Supper, taking the bread and a cup. The church alone offers this pure oblation to the Creator when she offers what comes forth from his creation with thanksgiving. The presentation of the offerings at the altar takes up the gesture of Melchizedek and commits the Creator's gifts into the hands of Christ, who, in his sacrifice, brings to perfection all human attempts to offer sacrifices. From the very beginning, Christians have brought, along with the bread and wine for the Eucharist, gifts to share with those in need. This custom of the collection, ever appropriate, is inspired by the example of Christ who became poor to make us rich. Those who are well off and who are also willing Give as each chooses. What is gathered is given to him who presides to assist orphans and widows, those whom illness or any other cause has deprived of resources, prisoners, immigrants, and in a word, all who are in need. The Anaphora. With the Eucharistic prayer, the prayer of thanksgiving and consecration, we come to the heart and summit of the celebration. In the preface, the Church give thanks, gives thanks to the Father, through Christ, in the Holy Spirit, for all his works creation, redemption, and sanctification. The whole community thus joins in the unending praise that the church in heaven, the angels and all the saints, sing to the thrice holy God. In the Epiclesis, the church asks the Father to send his Holy Spirit, or the power of his blessing, on the bread and wine, so that by his power they may become the body and blood of Jesus Christ, and so that those who take part in the Eucharist may be one body and one spirit, some liturgical traditions put the epiclesis after the anamnesis. In the institution narrative, the power of the words and the action of Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit, 
make sacramentally present under the species of bread and wine, Christ's body and blood, his sacrifice offered on the cross once for all. In the anamnesis that follows, the church calls to mind the passion, resurrection, and glorious return of Jesus Christ. She presents to the Father the offering of his Son, which reconciles us with him. In the intercessions, the church indicates that the Eucharist is celebrated in communion with the whole church in heaven and on earth, the living and the dead, and in communion with the pastors of the church, the Pope, the diocesan bishop, his presbyterium, and his deacons, and all the bishops of the whole world together with their churches. In the communion, preceded by the Lord's Prayer and the breaking of the bread, the faithful receive the bread of heaven and the cup of salvation, the body and blood of Christ who offered himself for the life of the world. Because this bread and wine have been made Eucharist, Eucharisted, according to an ancient expression, we call this food Eucharist, and no one may take part in it unless he believes that what we teach is true, has received baptism for the forgiveness of sins and new birth, and lives in keeping with what Christ taught. The Sacramental Sacrifice, Thanksgiving, Memorial, Presence. If, from the beginning, Christians have celebrated the Eucharist, and in a form whose substance has not changed, despite the great diversity of times and liturgies, it is because we know ourselves to be bound by the command the Lord gave on the new eve, excuse me, on the eve of his passion. Do this in remembrance of me. We carry out this command of the Lord by celebrating the memorial of his sacrifice. In so doing, we offer to the Father what he has himself given us, the gifts of his creation, bread and wine which, by the power of the Holy Spirit and by the words of Christ, have become the body and blood of Christ. Christ is thus really and mysteriously made present. We must therefore consider the Eucharist as thanksgiving and praise to the Father, the sacrificial memorial of Christ and his body, the presence of Christ by the power of his word and of his spirit. Thanksgiving and praise to the Father. The Eucharist, the sacrament of our salvation, accomplished by Christ on the cross, is also a sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving for the work of creation. In the Eucharistic sacrifice, the whole of creation, loved by God, is presented to the Father through the death and the resurrection of Christ. Through Christ, the Church can offer the sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving for all that God has made good, beautiful, and just in creation and in humanity. The Eucharist is a sacrifice of thanksgiving to the Father, a blessing by which the Church expresses her gratitude to God for all his benefits, for all that he has accomplished through creation, redemption, and sanctification. Eucharist means, first of all, thanksgiving. The Eucharist is also the sacrifice of praise by which the Church sings the glory of God in the name of all creation. This sacrifice of praise is possibly only through Christ. He unites the faithful to his person, to his praise, and to his intercession, so that the sacrifice of praise to the Father is offered through Christ and with him to be accepted in him, the sacrificial memorial of Christ and of his body, the church. The Eucharist is the memorial of Christ's Passover, the making present and the sacramental offering of his unique sacrifice in the liturgy of the church, which is his body. In all the Eucharistic prayers, we find after the words of institution, a prayer called the anamnesis or memorial. In the sense of sacred scripture, the memorial is not merely the recollection of past events, but the proclamation of the mighty works wrought by God for men. In the liturgical celebration of these events, they become in a certain way present and real. This is how Israel understands its liberation from Egypt. Every time Passover is celebrated, the Exodus events are made present to the memory of believers so that they may conform their lives to them. In the New Testament, the memorial takes on new meaning. 
When the church celebrates the Eucharist, she commemorates Christ's Passover, and it is made present. That The sacrifice Christ offered once for all on the cross remains ever-present. As often as the sacrifice of the cross, by which Christ our Pash has been sacrificed, is celebrated on the altar, the work of our redemption is carried out. Because it is the memorial of Christ's Passover, the Eucharist is also a sacrifice. The sacrificial character of the Eucharist is manifested in the very words of institution. This is my body which is given for you, and this cup which is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. In the Eucharist, Christ gives us the very body which he gave up for us on the cross, the very blood which he poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. The Eucharist is thus a sacrifice because it represents or makes present the sacrifice of the cross, because it is its memorial and because it applies its fruit. Christ, our Lord and God, was once and for all to offer himself to God the Father by his death on the altar of the cross, to accomplish there an everlasting redemption. But because his priesthood was not to end with his death, at the Last Supper on the night when he was betrayed, he wanted to leave his beloved spouse, the church, a visible sacrifice, as the nature of man demands, by which the bloody sacrifice which he was to accomplish once for all on the cross would be represented, its memory perpetuated until the end of the world, and its salutary power be applied to the forgiveness of the sins we daily commit. The sacrifice of Christ and the sacrifice of the Eucharist are one single sacrifice. The victim is one and the same. The same now offers through the ministry of priests, who then offered himself on the cross. Only the manner of offering is different. And since in this divine sacrifice, which is celebrated in the Mass, the same Christ who offered himself once in a bloody manner on the altar of the cross is contained and offered in an unbloody manner. This sacrifice is truly propitiatory. The sacrifice is also the sacrifice of the Church. The Church, which is the body of Christ, participates in the offering of her head. With him, she herself is offered whole and entire. She unites herself to his intercession with the Father for all men. In the Eucharist, the sacrifice of Christ becomes also the sacrifice of the members of his body. The lives of the faithful, their praise, sufferings, prayer, and work are united with those of Christ and with his total offering, and so acquire a new value. Christ's sacrifice present on the altar makes it possible for all generations of Christians to be united with his offering. In the catacombs, the church is often represented as a woman in prayer, arms outstretched in the praying position. Like Christ, who stretched out his arms on the cross, through him, with him, and in him, she offers herself and intercedes for all men. The whole church is united with the offering and intercession of Christ. Since he has the ministry of Peter in the church, the Pope is associated with every celebration of the Eucharist, wherein he is named as the sign and servant of the unity of the universal church. The bishop of the place is always responsible for the Eucharist, even when a priest presides. The bishop's name is mentioned to signify his presidency over the particular church, in the midst of his presbyterium, and with the assistance of deacons. The community intercedes also for all ministers, who for it and with it offer the Eucharistic sacrifice. Let only that Eucharist be regarded as legitimate, which is celebrated under the presidency of the bishop or him to whom he has entrusted it. Through the ministry of priests, the spiritual sacrifice of the faithful is completed in union with the sacrifice of Christ, the only mediator, which in the Eucharist is offered through the priest's hands, priest's hands in the name of the whole church in an unbloody and sacramental manner until the Lord himself comes. 
to the offering of Christ are united not only the members still here on earth, but also those already in the glory of heaven. In communion with the commemorating the Blessed Virgin Mary and all the saints, the Church offers the Eucharistic sacrifice. In the Eucharist, the Church is, as it were, at the foot of the cross with Mary, united with the offering and intercession of Christ. The Eucharistic sacrifice is also offered for the faithful departed, who have died in Christ but are not yet wholly purified, so that they may be able to enter into the light and peace of Christ. Put this body anywhere. Don't trouble yourselves about it. I simply ask you to remember me at the Lord's altar, wherever you are. That was St. Monica before her death to her sons. Then we pray in the anaphora for the Holy Fathers and bishops who have fallen asleep, and in general for all who have fallen asleep before us, in the belief that it is a great benefit to the souls on whose behalf the supplication is offered, while the holy and tremendous victim is present. By offering to God our supplications for those who have fallen asleep, if they have sinned, we offer Christ sacrificed for the sins of all, and so render favorable for them and for us the God who loves man. St. Augustine admirably summed up this doctrine that moves us to an ever more complete participation in our Redeemer's sacrifice, which we celebrate in the Eucharist. This holy redeemed city, the assembly and society of the saints, is offered to God as a universal sacrifice by the high priest, who in the form of a slave went so far as to offer himself for us in his passion, to make us the body of so great a head. Such is the sacrifice of Christians." We, who are many, are one body in Christ. The Church continues to reproduce this sacrifice in the sacrament of the altar, so well known to believers, wherein it is evident to them that in what she offers, she herself is offered. This brings us to the end of our reading selection and the end of our episode. Thanks for joining me for another week. Between this week and next week's episode, please connect with me on Instagram at Catholic Light Podcast. Know that I'll be praying for you. Please pray for me. And in the meantime, God bless you. Thanks for joining me this week on Catholic Light. Be sure to like, subscribe, and share this podcast with your family and your friends. And connect with me through Facebook and Instagram. I'll see you next week. And in the meantime, God bless you.